My research has identified that there are five different ways that people approach their decisions. And I gave them all fun names because we think in words. And so in order to build the lexicon and to be able to remember them, I call them the adventurer, the detective, the listener, the thinker, and the visionary. And each of these decision-making problem solver profiles, each have some beautiful strengths and they also have some of these key cognitive biases. Once you understand which one you are, it's gonna be much easier for you to be able to say whether it's writing or anything else, this is why I'm good at this. This is why I'm comfortable with this. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. You know, if there's one thing you can count on when you set out to write a book, it's that you're going to have to make a lot of decisions. Decisions about what the book will be, decisions about when you're going to write, what you'll include in the book, what you'll leave out of the book, how you want to publish. The list can appear endless. It's not, don't worry, but it can appear endless. And so I thought it would be fun to have with us on the show an expert in decision-making. And thus, I am happy to introduce to you Cheryl Strauss-Einhorn. She is the founder of Decisive, a decision sciences company that trains people and teams in complex problem-solving and decision-making skills using her AREA method. AREA, all caps, A-R-E-A, is an evidence-based decision-making system that uniquely controls for and counters cognitive bias to expand knowledge while improving judgment. Now, Cheryl developed AREA during her two decades as an award-winning investigative journalist, writing for publications ranging from the New York Times and Foreign Policy Magazine to the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Cheryl teaches at Cornell University, and Cornell University Press is also her publisher. She has authored three books, Problem Solved, A Powerful System for Making Complex Decisions with Confidence and Conviction, which is about personal and professional decision-making, and Investing in Financial Research, A Decision-Making System for Better Results, which is obviously about financial and investment decisions, right? Which, boy, those can really... Uh, be life-changing, right? <laughs> and then finally, her new book is about problem solver profiles uh, called Problem Solver, Maximizing Your Strengths to Make Better Decisions. And this was just released in March of 2023. And that's a lot of what we talk about today. Cheryl has actually identified some problem solver personalities 
and she has described them in her book so that you can not only recognize yourself, but you can recognize others, people that you work with, people on your team, people who are clients, people who are publishers, right? And you can assess what their problem solver personality is and how they make decisions and what kinds of behaviors you can expect from them. And then that enables you to be more effective. So powerful, powerful stuff today. So let's tune in and hear more about what Cheryl has to say. Enjoy. Cheryl, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you today. Well, it is an absolute pleasure to have you. And, you know, I was thinking about your book, this whole idea about how we make decisions, right? And I immediately, all these decision points in authorship came up for me. And the first one that popped into my head was when you were talking about how to know, basically, if your feelings are lying to you, right? How to tell if your inner voice is a liar. That's what it was. Yes. Well, that was the topic for my TED Talk, which discusses my framework for decision-making that I call the area method and discusses my first book, which is called Problem Solved, which is on personal and professional complex problem solving. I know we're here today to really focus on my new book, which just came out, my third book, which is called Problem Solver, and is really what I've learned since I've published that first book, building on this idea of how our inner voice is a liar. And the reason why that was the title of my TED Talk is because we now know that most of us operate through this dirty windshield of bias. We have these cognitive biases, these mental mistakes. And so we think we're experiencing the world as it is, but instead we're actually experiencing the world as we are. And so when we use a knowledge system, any system like my area method, decision-making system, we pick and choose pieces of a system that are more comfortable, that speak to these well-worn ruts, these habits and patterns of behavior, which may or may not reflect what's happening in the moment. Mm. And so the new book, Problem Solver, basically says that while area has been able to be adopted as a decision-making system to counterterrorism professionals, meditation experts, students in high school, college, executives of all levels, people making personal or professional decisions, that they tend to naturally gravitate towards certain parts and not others. And in order to figure out why that is, if they could figure out the psychology of their own decision-making, what I call their problem-solver profile, they can understand why they make decisions the way they do. They can bolster their strengths and they can also limit some of these key cognitive biases that are most bothersome for the type of problem-solver profile that they are. Mm -hmm. So I want, I'd love to hear you speak a little bit too, because I think that one of the big challenges that authors face, and I coached a lot of authors over the last 30 years, is that, you know, when they stop themselves, right? Like when they're not writing, when they're avoiding, when they're feeling like, you know, some people call it writer's block. Could you share a little bit about like, if I'm wanting to use my problem solver muscle, how might I approach an issue like that? 
Yeah, so my research has identified that there are five different ways that people approach their decisions. And I gave them all fun names because we think in words. Mm -hmm. And so in order to build the lexicon and to be able to remember them, I call them the adventurer, the detective, the listener, the thinker, and the visionary. And each of these decision-making problem-solver profiles, each have some beautiful strengths, and they also have some of these key cognitive biases. Once you understand which one you are, it's going to be much easier for you to be able to say, whether it's writing or anything else, this is why I'm good at this. This is why I'm comfortable with this. So the adventurer is somebody who is pretty confident and is optimizing for the future. This is somebody who feels like it's pretty easy to make decisions so they can keep making new ones. So this might be somebody in their writing who can continually move the storyline forward because they're constantly getting to the future. Hmm. For somebody who's a detective, you've got somebody who really likes to ground themselves in the evidence. And mm -hmm. you've probably worked with writers like this. I have when I've worked with other writers. And frankly, I'm a detective and I can sit in this space as well. Of I'd like to get some data to support that hypothesis. And therefore, you have somebody who also can fall prey to a confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. And so they can really oh, end yeah. up getting stuck thinking that whatever is the piece of data that's correct for them, they can then go ahead and try to convince everybody else of that same way of looking at the world. For the listener, this is somebody who's a collaborative decision maker. They generally have a trusted group of advisors. And so for the listener, this may be somebody who wants a lot of input and feedback on what they're writing and whether or not it's good before they're willing to progress. Hmm. For the thinker, you've got somebody who likes to be in the problem solving, but often has difficulty with the decision making. This is hmm. a thoughtful, careful, relatively slow decision maker who can have a frame blindness and who can get stuck in thinking about one option against the other. For this kind of a writer, because of being a thinker, they may be somebody who really just can't decide which way to go. They may rewrite the same passage over and over mm. to see how it sounds from a variety of different organizational points or perspectives. And then last but certainly not least is our visionary. This person wants something that is original. They can fall prey to a scarcity bias or a saliency bias where something to them becomes the single most important thing. And they may go ahead and really feel like a book should go in a particular direction, but may not be able to as easily figure out what's the pathway to get there because they skip mm. to the end because right. they can see that terrific outcome. Right. So those are different ways that the problem solver profiles are optimizing for different outcomes. And they also really speak to different value structures. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. So what did you say you are? The detective? I'm a detective. The detective. Yeah. So do you have an example from your own writing experience where your detective nature, um, I, I kind of would love to hear what, like an example of when it slowed you down and, and when it when it actually really supported you maybe we could get one of each from you so i think it can slow me down because you got to prove it to me right and i think that can be difficult you might have a great idea but if you give it to me as an opinion without facts 
I don't hear the opinion as evidence mm. in the same way that a listener knows that you're giving the evidence and the listener may or may not need a fact to mm. back it up. So that's an example of how it can slow me down. At the same time, I feel very safe in a world that allows me to have time to research. Mm. There is like a true comfort zone for me to be able to know that I can look something up right. and that I can track the information and that that information can help me build a foundation that I can then do other things with. Yeah, absolutely. I think my, uh, my mentor was a detective. He was an investigative reporter. So <laughs> it's pretty, and that's my, and that's my background. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, we, we got along fine until he uh, clocked me for putting the staple about an, a 16th of an inch into the wrong side of the angle. Um, other than that, though, I love the guy. Uh, <laughs> and I learned a lot from him. So. <laughs> no, but you're right. Detectives can be sticklers because yeah. they, they really have a fact pattern comfort level where if the staple's not in the right place, I suppose somebody could get... Well, you might lose a page is the, is the problem, right? Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because even in that, in that moment where I was like, oh, my God, I'm working for a crazy person. But, <laughs> but it was even then a facetious thought because, because I knew it was that same attention to detail that made him a great journalist and a great nonfiction book writer and a trusted reporter, a trusted... And yeah, and I would just circle back on something because my TED Talk talks about my journalism background, which is obviously what I built my area method off of because I was trying to do a more ethical job at work, is that I knew that I wanted a way to know that I was marshalling the right evidence, that I was telling stories that were both true and that should be told, given that the stories that I was writing during my years as an editor and columnist at Barron's, the business magazine, hmm. that those were stories that had this incredible outsized impact where right. companies went out of business, a CEO went to jail for 10 years, hmm. a company was raided by the FBI. And I realized that as share price performance of the publicly traded companies that I was writing about were being impacted, this doesn't just impact somebody's investment portfolio. It could be their retirement account. It could be their ability right. to get up and go to work in the morning. If they worked at one of the companies where I wrote an article that cast some skepticism about a company's strategy or about its financials. And if you were a consumer of the product or service of one of the companies that I wrote these bearish articles about, how could you feel that you could really trust that product? And one of the companies was the largest maker of diabetic test kits. And that's a product that people use for their yeah. health every day. Yes. Yes. And has life and death consequences. Yeah, absolutely. And it is so vital, like you said, because there's so many ripples and, and you know, you're right. I think that it probably, you know, it's interesting because my, my mentor wrote about, um, he was a world leading expert in espionage during the cold war. So his, his, his writings could have some impact too, but yours were, were really real time, right? Because if somebody reads that in the morning, that's going to affect stock prices that same day. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's really impactful. That's really impactful. So you say that you've worked with other writers. Do, do you have an opinion on um, 
is there a particular personality type that is the easiest to work with in, with as a writer, or do you find that they're they're all they all have you know challenges and as well as things that make it fabulous? Well, I think this again speaks to the research in my new book, Problem Solver, about the psychology of decision making and problem solver profiles. Once you understand these five different ways that people approach their decisions you have an opportunity to strengthen every relationship and to be able to understand the information needs of the people with whom you make decisions. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if you're working with an adventure, detective, listener, thinker, or visionary. What becomes important is to know all five of the problem solver profiles so that you know how to work well with them. And I think yeah. the onus really is on each of us to build the relationships that we find ourselves in, we have an opportunity to really have a nicer time together to solve problems more holistically. I know for me that this new research really transformed, for instance, my relationship with my mother. Oh, So no matter what type of a writer you're working with, any relationship that you're in can benefit from the new research in Problem Solver. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, and, you know, it's so true, right? Because how we do one thing is how we do everything, right? And so, I mean, and that's the problem, right? Yeah. Because that means that we're sitting in our own perspective. Yeah. So to truly get along with somebody else, we have to be able to hear them. So if you're working with a writer who's an adventurer, it's a very different, I think, writing approach than if you're working with somebody who is a listener. Mm-hmm. So yeah, was why on that topic, how would you approach working with an adventurer versus a, a listener? Well, with an adventurer, I would know that that person wants to see progress. And yeah. so because they want to feel a sense of momentum, it's important to them that they feel a sense of moving forward. I would be focused on thinking about next steps with them. Hmm. We're working on this because we think that's the next step. So we get them constantly recognizing that we're in the present working towards a future. Mm. A listener wants to know that other people are being brought along, that they're sitting in the conversation with you around that table. That's a different approach to writing. Mm. And so helping them to think about what would make the reader feel included, understanding who that reader is, so that you're speaking specifically to that group of readers, I think is something that would make them feel heard and would make them feel appreciated. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's interesting. I just recently wrote an article about the difference between, you know, people always say, I want to write in a conversational tone. And I, in, in my blog post, invited us all to reframe the question. And it's it's because I think what they're really saying, because, of course, writing like a conversation would be awful because people do what I just did, uh, <laughs> you know, bounce from one thought to the next. But if but really what I think what they're asking for is how do I write to create intimacy? Right. How do I write in a way that makes the reader feel seen? And, you know, I just thought of that when you were speaking about the listener. I think that's interesting, right? Because obviously I think the best medicine to be, well, there's two things I think to be a great writer. One is to be an avid reader. Yes. And the other one is to write. Yes. Right. So those are, those are the two things, but. Um, to write and to rewrite. Uh, yes. <laughs> to edit. <laughs> yeah, I think I think to edit, but also I think there's like a real um, 
push-pull about how much intimacy you have to the writer and what is that level of vulnerability in that space with your reader. Mm -hmm. Yes. Say more. I just think, you know, it's interesting because I think I write books that try to have somebody understand how to enter into thinking about decision-making in a way that they can bring forward decisions that are in their mind. And in order to do that, I think that there's a lot of storytelling and many business books have a more theoretical approach to them. I like to be narrative driven mm -hmm. and there's no right or wrong in writing, which mm -hmm. I think is, is another thing that is very beautiful because what works for one reader may or may not work for another reader, which means that there's space for all kinds of books. But I do think that this is a question that the writer faces when they're sitting down is what is their own personality mm -hmm. and their own vulnerability in those pages. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that it's so powerful to, I, mean, I, I tend to lean towards the narrative approach as well. And I think that when we're writing mass market nonfiction, which is very different than academic or technical, I think when we're writing mass market nonfiction that, you know, story is such a wonderful way to teach. I think that is. But the question is also like, what kind of a story and what actually is the point of entry for the reader into how to then translate that into thinking about their own experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Give me an example of when you've come across that and how you've handled that when you're writing your own books. How I think about bringing myself into my books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that relationship, be it as it may, with your reader. Well, I generally feel that I'm with my reader when I'm writing. Mm -hmm. So... There are plenty of moments where I feel like my readers would prefer to see a more distant example. Mm -hmm. And then I think sometimes to hit it home, then I want to personalize it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the combination of these different abilities to be near and far from your reader is part of what builds the credibility of the voice. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah, there's, there's definitely discernment, right, around which stories where <laughs> that, that needs to be there, that needs to be present. Hi there, Robin here. Have you been considering writing a thought leadership book that grows your business? How about writing a quality standout book with a real book publishing deal behind it that not only grows your business, but also grows your influence and reach? In case you're new to the Author's Corner, my name is Robin Colucci, and I help world-class experts write world-changing books and get them published. With over 30 years in the publishing industry, I've helped clients write and publish books with Big Five and other top publishing houses. Many have gone on to become New York Times, Amazon, and Wall Street Journal, as well as USA Today bestsellers. And others have increased their business income by 600 times or more as a result of their book being out in the world and the partnering work that they did with me and my team. If you are a top-notch expert who is ready to write your world-changing book, go ahead and book a free consultation call with my team today. We have a limited number of spots available, and we only take clients who are committed to the process and want to get their book started now. If that sounds like you, go to www 
www.robincolucci.com forward slash application. Go ahead and fill out the application form to be considered for one of our exclusive spots. Again, the link is www.robincolucci.com forward slash application. Now, back to the show. Okay, so hunt like the cheetah. So throughout my books, I use the analogy of the cheetah because although she's the fastest land animal, accelerating up to 60 miles in a single stride, she decelerates up to nine miles in a single stride. And that is more powerful than the acceleration because now you're talking about agility, flexibility, and maneuverability. And so that's what you need in a quality decision-making system. You know, decision-making has not really thought about this issue of strategic stops and timing. And yet time is a very valuable resource. So throughout all three of my books, the first one being problem solved on personal and professional decision-making, the second one is called investing in financial research and it's on financial and investment decisions. And then this newest book, Problem Solver, about the psychology of decision-making, I have these cheetah sheets, which are essentially the graphic organizers of the books. And everywhere that I have a cheetah sheet, I'm giving you a set of questions to help guide your decision-making. And in my newest book, I'm also giving you cheetah sheets that have been filled out by somebody who I've worked with so you can see how the logical progression of the question really helps to bring out the epiphany that the reader can have. And it also makes the books continually useful. It means that you can use them over and over again, like a workbook, because you can rip my recommendations right off the page and plug them right into your life. Yeah, fantastic. How did you come up with a cheetah? Reading. Reading. I, I like to read a lot of things. And I've been thinking about what could be something that is, again, one of these terms that will stick in your head and that I can use over and over again. And so first, the idea of the cheetah, of the animal as and the hunting prowess, I think mm. is really a nice tie into thinking about how powerful our decisions actually are and this idea of the agility that we need. But the other thing is this idea of cheetah sheet is almost like cheat sheet. I know. I, I picked up on that right away, and I just thought, that is so cool. I love Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> it does make it memorable, right? Because we've all heard of the cheat sheet. But yeah, I thought that was very clever. And people <laughs> use the language all the time. The idea of the cheetah sheet is something that people remember and they use, and it gives them that strategic stop that bump in their thinking so that they slow themselves down to speed up their efficacy. Mm. Yeah. And I'm seeing some of these questions and they really are an opportunity to slow down, self-reflect and break it down. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of books are missing. So what, what do I do with this? Right. And my, my work is all about practical application. Yeah. We're going to give you the theory. We're going to explain the metacognition. We're going to show you how it's benefited other people, but then we're going to teach you how to use it yourself. And, you know, there's two types of learning. There's knowledge and skill. And to me, decision-making is a skill, which means I can teach it to you. And then those skills can be yours. Yeah. It's like a cheat 
teach the well you don't have to teach the cheetah to hunt but it's basically what you're <laughs> the, che- the cheetah knows instinctively how to hunt oh yeah i was curious um cheryl what, what made you make the move from being a journalist to having your consulting business so i'm still a journalist i actually oh. have an article that is likely to come out next week in harvard business review but pardon you know, me, a full-time all, journalist. <laughs> yes. So in all my work, in all my work at Barron's, as I started to put together what I now call my area decision-making system, and then I began teaching with it at Columbia, both at the Graduate School of Journalism and at the Business School at Columbia, people started to say, hey, I hear you have a system for decision-making. So I started working with individuals and with companies and with government organizations and with nonprofits, and I realized that it was a business. And I just thought helping people to feel that they have greater confidence and conviction in their ability to make decisions helps people have greater agency and resiliency to take on ever bigger challenges. And so it was actually just the natural evolution of people wanting to learn the system Mm -hmm. and have me work with them that really led on this incredibly unexpected journey of writing these books and of starting Decisive. And, you know, the idea that somebody has a big decision that is going to have a long-term impact where the outcome is unknown and the price for getting it wrong is costly, and you can sit next to them and guide them through the thought process, the practical application of the area method, and they can feel like they really have confidence and conviction that they're arriving at a decision that can personally succeed for them Mm. is just an incredibly gratifying gift of a thing to be doing with my time. Yeah. And I imagine when you've got it that grounded, that it it probably makes the follow through a lot easier, right? And then the stick-to-itiveness, if you will. Well, I think once somebody realizes that decision-making is a skill and that they can read one of my books or they can work directly with me and my team, they want to do it again. Right. And all of a sudden now they're doing it with their wife or they're doing it with their oldest child who's applying to college. And you see them using it for unbelievable things. I had an MIT professor come to me. He wanted to be, in his own words, a more interesting person. Huh. <laughs> or I had somebody who is deciding about a major surgery. Wow. Or they're deciding about how to help their aging parents find the right place to live. Mm. These are life-changing, life-affirming decisions when you feel like you've made them well. And when you've made them in a way that includes the other stakeholders who mm. are involved in this decision. Right. Yeah, that's that's really powerful too. And I, I, I can really see, obviously, the application to business. Actually, could you say more about includes the other stakeholders? Because I know from working with a lot of business consultants and also having my own business for decades that, you know, it's, it's one thing for the CEO to want to go a direction, but if your team isn't on board, good luck, right? Uh, (laughs) I mean, you really have to have everybody behind this new direction or whatever that decision is. Could you speak a little bit more to that part of the decision-making and and including other stakeholders? Yeah, I think um, what we should do is share with your audience. What is the area method? 
ARIA is an acronym for the steps of my decision-making system, which uniquely controls for encounters cognitive bias so that it expands your knowledge while improving your judgment. So the first A is absolute information that is close up on the target of your decision. The R relative are related sources from the target, but not from the target itself. And then the E in area, I call the twin engines of creativity. It's area exploration and exploitation. Hmm. Exploration gets beyond documents to identify good prospects and ask them great questions. So it's building interview skills. Exploitation then turns the lens of inquiry on yourself as a decision maker. And here I give you a set of creative exercises that I've learned from experts in journalism, medicine, the intelligence gathering field that help you to test your assumptions against evidence. And then in final A analysis, I call this making your mistakes before you make them. Here's where you strength test your decision, you think about failure, and you come to conviction. There are several things that are unique about area. You can think of it almost as the opposite of Google. Normally, when we have a decision to make, we type it into Google, and immediately it gives us many answers. But we have no idea about the quality of the information, the credibility of the sources, or the applicability of the answers to why we personally are solving that decision. And the other thing that is original about area is that I believe that we've been operating under a false assumption that our decisions are ours alone, because at some point our decisions impact other people. Mm -hmm. I was speaking with somebody yesterday and I told them that even Henry David Thoreau, when he went out to <laughs> go to Walden Pond. Pond, he was not truly alone. His mother was right nearby. <laughs> At some level, we are all impacted <laughs> by the other stakeholders in our life. It kind of so, takes some of the, uh, the, 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 the sparkle or the, the, the mystery of Thoreau off the... <laughs> but it's true, right? And maybe that's why he was comfortable to go that very little right. distance away right. from his mother. But the point that I'm trying to make is that we talk about inclusion, but area is the practice of inclusion. It's how mm. we include right. each of the individual perspectives of the different stakeholders, allowing each one of them to have their own part of the process so that we can get up close on how they see and understand the problem that we're solving. Therefore, we can better understand their incentives and motives. And by pushing ourselves out of our perspective into the absolute, the relative, the exploration phases of the decision-making system, we also have an easier time spotting where we're making assumptions and judgments so that we can check and challenge that dirty windshield of bias for how we normally operate. And so that's where we really can arrive at a solution that holistically solves our problems built on a collaborative backbone that strengthens our relationships. You know, as I was listening to you, I was thinking of, like like you said, there's all these inclusion initiatives, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And too often they become window dressing and not really actually creating inclusion. And 
it's, it seems like a great model to use when you have a workplace that's committed to DE&I because there's no way to get through area without <laughs> the other stakeholders. But I, I would build on that even more because all of my work is about the practice of inclusion. Mm. The new book, Problem Solver, really gets at the beauty of intellectual diversity. If you want to have a fulsome understanding of the problems that you are solving, if you have people who think like you do, the same problem solver profile again and again, it may look diverse in the room, it may sound diverse, but the same lens on problem solving is the same. And that means that you are missing out on the types of questions that the other problem solver profiles would bring in, and that can make it tougher to have a fulsome understanding of the problem. And I'll say one other thing about how inclusive my new book, Problem Solver, is meant to be, which is previously, we might have wondered, why did we have friction with making decisions with a specific person, Mm -hmm. right? And we might have thought of them as flighty, or we might have thought of them as hasty, or we might have thought of them as moving slowly. And the truth is we no longer need to denigrate the different ways that people approach their problems when we have been able to gain an appreciation of what they're solving for. Mm -hmm. That the person who we think is hasty might be optimizing for forward momentum and could be an adventurer. Or the person who we think of as slow is the thinker who really wants to understand the options because they're trying to mitigate the downside risk. Mm -hmm. And so it can give us a much greater appreciation for the people who previously we thought we only saw friction. Right. And it also provides tools so that we can appreciate them in a productive way, right? Because I think we have, especially if you have like a visionary and a thinker or the adventurer and a thinker, right? Then it's almost polar in terms of, it sounds like to me, right? Almost a polar opposite. So that can be a lot more friction. It can be very useful when you're thinking about constructing a team. It can be very useful to use the problem solver profile to think about the different Mm. approaches that you want in the room. But Mm -hmm. even when you can't gain the intellectual diversity sitting around the table, knowing all five problem solver profiles, you can bring in those questions and you can still sit with them together at that table. Oh, yeah. That is also also a brilliant uh, approach. I love this. All right. So we're blowing through our time here, which is uh, amazing. I'm, I'm curious. So Cornell University Press is doing this yes. current book. Um, you know, one of the things our listeners are always interested in is the process of getting a book deal. Could you share with us just a little bit about your journey? Uh, I know this is your third book, so, uh, you know, feel free to start as far back as you wish. But um, like I said, our listeners love to hear about how people move through that process and everybody's story is a little different. So It's been real good fortune for me. Uh, My first book was published by a different publisher, but Cornell had also bid on the book. Mm -hmm. And uh, there had been a thought about putting them together, Cornell doing more academic books generally, and my first publisher being more of a trade press. And it seemed like a natural place to be together. But my initial publisher wanted to publish it alone. So Cornell offered me a three book deal. Oh, 
for my future books. And that's how I ended up at Cornell. And they've been lovely to work with. And I feel like they've done a nice job showing that the layout of the book matters to the reader. It matters to the accessibility of the information, especially when that information is something as meaty as problem solving. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. And there and there are all those lift outs and, you know, things to help the reader see what is there. Wonderful. Wow. Okay. So I am going to go ahead to my signature final question. And I know you've listened to my podcast, so you probably know what's coming. Cheryl, what have I not asked you today that you would love to answer? So first, thank you so much for having me today. I'd like to let people know how they can get in touch with me. They can reach me at my website, areamethod.com, where they'll find more information about all of my books, about my tools and services, recent articles that I've written, the podcast that I have called The Problem Solved Podcast, which talks about decision-making. And I hope people realize that no matter what problem they're solving, that they can build their skills and their tools to be able to make better decisions alone and with others. Great. Well, I believe that you've proven that to me today. So I hope... (laughs) I bet you've proven it to many, if not all of my, of our listeners. So Cheryl, thank you once again for being with us on the Author's Corner. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of the Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.